This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask poets to choose a poem for The New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Campbell McGrath, who's published nearly a dozen collections of poetry and whose honors include fellowships from United States Artists, the Library of Congress, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the MacArthur Foundation. Thanks so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure, needless to say. So the poem you've selected is Realism by Czeslaw Milos. Tell us, what in particular drew you to this poem as you're browsing through the archive? Well, you know, I didn't even need to browse through the archives. I remember this poem from The New Yorker even before it becoming, you know, a a poem in his books that I read again and again and again. All right, let's hear it. This is Campbell McGrath reading Realism by Czeslaw Milos, translated from the Polish by the author and Robert Haas. Realism. We are not so badly off if we can admire Dutch painting. For that means we shrug off what we have been told for a hundred, two hundred years. Though we lost much of our previous confidence, now we agree that those trees outside the window, which probably exist, only pretend to greenness and treeness, and that the language loses when it tries to cope with clusters of molecules. And yet this here, a jar, a tin plate, a half-peeled lemon, walnuts, a loaf of bread, last, and so strongly it is hard not to believe in their lastingness. And thus abstract art is brought to shame, even if we do not deserve any other. Therefore I enter those landscapes under a cloudy sky from which a ray shoots out, and in the middle of dark plains a spot of brightness glows, or the shore with huts, boats, and, on yellowish ice, tiny figures skating. All this is here eternally, just because once it was. Splendor, certainly incomprehensible, touches a cracked wall, a refuse heap, the floor of an inn, jerkins of the rustics, a broom, and two fish bleeding on a board. Rejoice! Give thanks! I raised my voice to join them in their choral singing, amid their ruffles, collets, and silk skirts. One of them already, who vanished long ago, and our song soared up like smoke from a censer. That was Realism by Czeslaw Milos, translated by the author and Robert Haas, published in the April 11th, 1994 issue of the magazine. So I love that uh, reading, but I also know why you admire this poem. 
it seems to me that all the ness, <laughs> it talks about the lastingness, the greenness, the treeness. I can see that in your work, A. And B, also, it's a kind of primer on what poetry does, isn't it? It's just a poem that is so intelligent in so many different ways and isn't making a big deal out of its intelligence, isn't even trying to prove anything to us except, you know, running through this set of thoughts inspired by looking at some old Dutch still life or still lives and then suddenly saying, well, what does it mean that this version of art versus, you know, I, I love in the middle where he comes to abstract art is brought to shame even though we deserve no other, that actually, I almost, I almost stopped it. You know, even in the reading of it, I almost laughed aloud at that line. Like, right? There's a humor in the poem. His humor um, sometimes is, well, it's often understated. How would you describe it? Uh, I think understated. Yeah, he's not. I mean, I, I can think of so many of his poems, and you don't. They're not. You don't laugh out loud. <laughs> I mean, in fact, but this one you know, somehow. <laughs> I mean, even just a... that. You know, like the jerkins of the rustics. I mean, I, yeah, I, I that's feel, a great line. I feel sure they were laughing him and Robert Hass <laughs> in the translation. Like you know, that's the tone. You know, in yeah. which you're you're using the language of that time, but you're also kind of realizing how there's a, just a comedy in those words to us nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what about translation? Do you think about it in, yourself, or uh, do you do translations? How do you approach this? Because I think that is another thing that, you know, it's a beautiful partnership between Milos and Haas. Uh, through, you know, many decades, they translated. Haas has spoken so well about that process for him and discovering uh, that connection. I wish Robert Haas would translate my poems <laughs> into Robert Haas poems. I mean, Miwosh was a was a crazy genius or whatever we want yeah, to call yeah. him, obviously. But, like, nonetheless, to have had Haas be your translator is a pretty amazing thing because right. you definitely read Miwosh's poems and you hear Haas's voice as well, which is such an incredibly deep, grounded voice with all this. That's so interesting. Again, intelligence and imagism and... Uh, yeah, I mean, because Hass's translations of haiku are just as brilliant, and they're yeah, you know right, crossing right. all these bounds. Well, and I think the other thing I like, just to get back to this philosophical quality that you're talking about, is there's these thuses and therefores, which again kind of mark the poem's uh, vintage or its thinking about vintage. But there's also a quality of uh, if this then that that isn't. It's unexpected. You know, the, there's a lot of leaps between the therefore. You know, it's not, well, therefore I enter those landscapes. Well, not necessarily, but sure, you do, you know. Yeah. He, uh, and thus abstract art is brought to shame. There's a there's a mind at work behind that. Absolutely. That's, that's what comes to me, you know, in this poem is like, wow, what a mind. I mean, it's what you feel in Elizabeth Bishop's poems is like, wow, there's that mind again. I mean, like three sentences, I think I could pass, you know, at random say, that's Elizabeth Bishop's mind. It's so smart, has a particular way of examining and addressing the world. Miwosh's is different, but deeply recognizable as a person who moves through the world as they write, both imagistically, there is a world, he's setting it down, and always, though, the ideas and the thoughts that might occur, that have occurred, become part of the text, even as he's exploring and depicting the world, he's also thinking it through, and they become interwoven on the page in this just breathtaking kind of way. That's well put. In the beginning there, for that means we shrug off what we have been told for a hundred, two hundred years. You know, you could almost stop there. Right. <laughs> and then he says, though... We lost much of our previous confidence. Okay, you know, that's yet another. Wait, hold on. We had confidence, we lost it. And then he says, right. now we agree. 
do we? You know, that those trees outside the window, which probably exist, only pretend to greenness and treeness. And, and that kind of quality of language that he's saying the world is always, in a way, translated. And yes. that this, this yeah. art is itself a translation is really fascinating. Yes. I mean, you know, it's a poem about visual art. Theoretically, it's just about visual art. Obviously, always a poet, when writing about visual art, is using that as also a metaphor for literary art, for poetry. It's like saying, yeah, look, I'm going to look at Dutch paintings. I know those are 200, 300 years old, and that's now antiquated. We don't do that anymore. You know, we're so modern, we make modern art. And yet, what the heck? Look at this. I mean, how can I not see it and feel like our art is brought to shame mm. by the perfection of that art? Yeah. Not that not that everything needs to be that still life. Yes. But like when you see it, you're like, but there's something about this, isn't there? That you just say there's hmm. something, it's incredible and brilliant and perfect in its, its attention to the world. Mm-hmm. I can feel that too when I look at a you know Motherwell painting yeah, or uh, yeah. some Jackson Pollock say, but its notion of attention were different. I, I'm not. I mean, I think for sure Miwash is a more conservative yeah. art art critic than I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I like all versions. Exactly. If we of only it. had Dutch art, yes. yeah, maybe. If we only had Dutch art, I'd say, well, what happened? I mean, <laughs> right. But he is saying, look here. I think poets are often saying, look at this overlooked thing. But he's also saying this wasn't once overlooked. And so that's an interesting collaboration. All this is here eternally just because once it was. That's a really interesting idea, which is that art is, of course, always wrestling with is how do I capture this moment but also capture it forever. It's, you know, and that too is a notion that artists would – uh, resist or deny mm, now, mm. you know, in our more cynical age, it's that's the Shakespearean notion, you know. So mm. long as this, I, if I, I, hey, you're eternal. If I write you in this poem, because mm-hmm. art is eternal. Wow, I mean, Shakespeare believed that, and I guess the Dutch masters believe that too. Nowadays, you don't believe it. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, I think it's all going underwater, and uh, I don't <laughs> you think... You do live in Miami, so there is that, uh, I mean, that uh, notion behind uh, right. apocalypse, welcome it, you yeah. know, is that what you're saying? I mean, I, I mean, as a species, we're not eternal, so how can anything we make be eternal? But, I mean, if there what is, is eternal, anything yeah. eternal that we as human beings do, I do believe it's art. Okay. Um, well, and Milos is, is interesting, because there is a part of this poem that I thought was very Catholic in the big C sense. I mean, it's also trying to think about the little C Catholic in some way, but he's also talking about a very specific kind of wonder. Uh, He calls it uh, splendor, certainly incomprehensible. You know, that's a is that that a very Catholic notion? Is that something you that strikes you here? It might be. Um, you know, I was I was thinking of it aesthetically. You know, I mean, there's nothing splendid about you know the fish being cut up on the board <laughs> or the you know the half of a melon right, in right. those paintings. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, right, the, the thing itself. Right, right. You'd be like, it's a half a melon, whatever. I don't you know get it away. Perhaps you'd say. It's the depiction of it that actually ah, makes it better than the reality. I see. I mean, in other words, if you were it's actually— It's not inherent in the object. I don't know. I mean, that's what I think this questions that. Because, like, if you mm-hmm. were given the, the tray of objects that this Dutch master is going to depict, like, a, you know, a, a dead grouse and a chopped up fish and a melon and a lemon, you, might say, <laughs> you might say, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And yet, when you and look yet, at it, yeah. you're, as you say, you know, you're drawn in. Suddenly, I'm in, I'm in that landscape just with those little tiny ice skaters— 
Yeah, you know, yellowish eyes, which is a great just detail. drawn out there because it's the, that person's attention to that world is so convincing that I feel as if I can enter it. Mm-hmm. And I think he's saying that's something that, like, even if you were to say I love Jackson Pollock, it doesn't create a world that invites me into it. I'm responding to it some different way. I think that would have been what hmm. Bush might have said. Interesting. Here right. he's saying, "Rejoice, give thanks." And then he says, one of them already who vanished long ago. He, he joins this uh, lostness. And I, I think that – but he's also talking about lastingness. And I think we – you know, this is something I end up writing about a lot is we're more interested in what's gone than what lasts sometimes, you know. And maybe that's the difference. Yes. I mean and also, again, Miwush's whole life – was colorized by the notion of Europeanness. I mean, mm-hmm, that, you know, he, mm-hmm. he came from a part of Europe that was distinctly European and yet at the edges. He was at the edges of European culture. That's how he always felt himself, you know, from that kind of Lithuanian, hmm. Ukrainian, Polish borderland. Like, we've been part of Europe a long time, and yet we've always been an outskirt of Europe. We're not Paris. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, he always knew intellectually he is of Western civilization, whatever that means, and the Catholic Church even, which is yeah. that for millennia, the centerpiece of that notion. And yet then he ended up living the second half of his life in Berkeley mm-hmm. at the, another, that the far other edge of Western civilization, looking over another ocean and kind of therefore I think was constantly attentive to, well, what, what is this thing that he knew he really had come from mm. and yet could now look back on? And so when you see the Dutch masters, well, they knew what it was. That's, you know, whatever Western civilization so is, a, that's yeah, it. Yeah. So he feels like he's grabbing hold of solid thing. But then he ends and our song soared up like smoke from a censer. And that uh, reaches back into ritual and it does. Uh, the church. It really does. It makes yeah. it spiritual. And it also makes that we, is that we, you know, me, Wosh, and every other artist who's ever existed, all of us as human beings who are attending to the moment, whatever it might be. Or it's is a it really the Western? We. <laughs> we, I mean, and that's the question I right. think the poem thinks about a little bit is, can everyone make that leap? Or should one? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, your poem that we're going to look at in a minute, uh, it goes internal where, where this poem goes external. But I also – I wonder if that smoke isn't more fragile than Milos even intends it to be. I mean the smoke goes away, right? Yes. Again, I think he he was also aware that he was writing at the end of a tradition. I mean, mm. you know, the Catholic Church being central to his worldview and he was even buried in a, in a, in a church in Krakow. But – uh, you know, if he'd lived even 20 years, 15 years longer, I wonder what his, you know, the, the, the church that I'm sure he had some skepticism about has itself been kind of reduced in the way that, you know, has been reimagined now through a, this whole different lens of what it has has been. You know, I mean, I'm... Did you grow up Catholic? I didn't really. My parents, you know, grew up Catholic, Irish Catholics. They had kind of were suspicious of it by the time I was brought up. I was baptized, and then I, you know, only when I visited family members, my aunts and them, and so the the family you could have been pope. I mean, I, I was baptized Catholic too, so <laughs> I could be pope one day. See, these there's are still valu- a chance. These right? are valuable credentials. It's like having an you know an EU passport. <laughs> well, it's more like having a, a British passport that That's Brexit true. is coming. Yeah, you're right. Now, in the November third, two thousand three issue of the magazine, the New Yorker printed your poem, "The Human Heart." which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you'd like us to know about this poem, anything that comes to mind? It's not exactly representative of my poems. If you read my, you know, selected poems, there's not too many that look like this poem. 
uh, I stumbled into this poem, and it has remained very meaningful to me. Here is Campbell McGrath reading his poem, The Human Heart. The Human Heart. We construct it from tin and ambergris and clay, ochre, graph paper, a funnel of ghosts, whirlpool in a downspout full of midsummer rain. It is, for all its freedom and obstinance, an artifact of human agency in its maverick intricacy, its chaos reflected in earthly circumstance, its appetites mirrored by a hungry world, like the lights of the casino in the coyote's eye. Old as the odor of almonds in the hills around Solano, filigreed and chanceled with flavor of blood oranges, fashioned from moonlight, yarn, nacre, cordite, shaped and assembled valve by valve, flange by flange, and finished with the carnal fire of interstellar dust. We build the human heart and lock it in its chest and hope that what we have made can save us. That was The Human Heart by Campbell McGrath. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So I'm struck by the form as well. When you say it doesn't look like this, do you mean the the rhyme that creeps in? The 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 what I love about it is just when you think you know how it's going to exactly rhyme, I feel like it shifts on us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I love rhyme. I mean, you like rhyme too. I mean, yeah, I, sure. I, I mean, it just it's a confession. Let's confess. Yeah, that. I mean, you know, <laughs> rhyme the, is okay. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, I I feel bad for the weird corner rhyme has been sent to stand in now by poets. I'm like. You know, like if you ask graduate students to write a rhyme poem, they really think that they're being tormented in a way. I'm like, no, come on, this isn't. I mean, rhyme is so creative. I mean, it, you well, because know. rhyme, let's face it, rhyme was done really badly for a while. I mean, sure. I think if you read late 19th century poems uh, in the American, you know, scene and read broadly, you you, you come away saying maybe we should have uh, right. <laughs> disposed of rhyme. Absolutely, no, I I, I completely agree. That's but why I, <laughs> I myself seldom really. But, but do it. you know, the, the, you know, we can mark rhyme's return in some way, and and I think we have, you know, slam poetry to thank for that, and 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 hip hop and many other. Rhymes that thought about internal rhyme and thought about different kinds of rhyme than the kinds of end rhyme that, you know, da 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 that had kind of dominated for, you know, it felt like eons. Absolutely. Then that got blown up with its antithesis with, like, modernism. Like, not only are we not going to rhyme, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Like, okay, then that 
that was another alienating <laughs> gesture. And the, you know, the Poets few, get in their own way, I suppose. The few people who had stuck with poetry as readers said, well, now I'm really done. It doesn't <laughs> rhyme and I don't understand it. And even if it does rhyme, it's you know greeting card rhyme. So, I, yes, greeting card rhyme is of no value to us. Right. See, I was thinking you were going to say that your other poems don't do this kind of thing where they think about this big idea, but they all do in some way. And here you are you know, addressing or, or bringing this we, uh, much like Milos, but then also to this piece of anatomy that, of course, is more than that. It is ambergris and clay ochre. It is maverick intricacy. It is the lights of the casino and the coyote's eye, a great line. What brought you to do that? You said it was a little different. I liked the notion of this poem going with the, the Milos poem, that they are, both, they are both poems that are doing this gesture of thinking for a we, speaking for a we, which is, again, a gesture we're skeptical of in this modern age, and I think rightfully so. Um, but this is a poem where I felt like, no, I'm, I, I feel something to be true, and I just want to say that. I think this is a thing. You know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, whatever, I don't mind. But I'm so skeptical of, <laughs> of things, and maybe cynical, too, that I seldom, you know, posit a thing as definitely, no, I, I'll, I'll probably undercut it and offer the alternative in my poem as well. Sure. It's like, no, no, I think this thing is true, that the heart isn't something we're given, we build it. We, we think mm-hmm. of, you know, I mean, even, not, I don't mean biologically, although we do build our own heart biologically, too, I suppose, anatomically, but... So many things that we talk about, like community, the heart, compassion, these are not like passive things that we receive. These are, these are things we need to construct through active participation, engagement. Mm-hmm. And like I, I guess at the certain moment when I wrote this poem, I was just startled to see to, suddenly that came into shape in my mind like, oh, oh, it's this. You know, it was kind of an argument poem with people mm-hmm. who, who felt differently. Like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. It's just you know, like, no, if you don't do it, then you are heartless or then you, have, you, you are failing. Well, then I said, okay, so what does it mean we have to build the heart? Okay, that's mm-hmm. an interesting thought. Yeah, because you don't start there. Uh, you can't, and I don't think you could. Yeah. Uh, I think it's much stronger to say, here it is. It's built of these strange to each other elements. I think what's one of the functions of the rhyme in the poem is your you know, rhyme is always connecting these two ideas. And, and I feel that rhyme is saying these two things aren't just sounding alike, they are alike. You know, and you manage to, to by making the rhymes, let's call it strange, uh, you, you, Moonlight and Cordite, they are full rhymes, but they feel very different. They're unexpected. And I think, you know, you're, you've come pretty close to the orange, uh, the difficulty <laughs> of orange not rhyming with anything with flange there, you know? Yeah, you're right about that. I, I, that's, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I was conscious of orange being the unrhymable word, but, for, you know, I mean, because I could have changed the fruit, I suppose, if, you know, but, but I like... No, but you like oranges. I do like oranges, and blood oranges, too, because this is the heart we're talking about. Yeah, I think, you know, right, you right. have to be a little bloodier, you know. The fact that it's called a blood orange makes it, to me, a great thing to bring into the heart. It's a great thing. And cordite and moonlight, I agree, that's the most, you know, th- that's the most rhyming of opposites that therefore somehow mm-hmm. makes you mm-hmm. makes you consider them as a pair, and they're so, you know, different at so many levels, um, and rhyme does do that. It, it, it pairs those two words, at least if in your consideration for a moment, even if it moves forward. Were you conscious of starting with the more slant of the rhymes and then moving into a fuller rhyme, uh, or at least visually a fuller rhyme? You know, clay and rain and funnel and whirlpool are perhaps the least rhymey of the rhymes, and that's what starts us off. And then we get obstinance and circumstance, 
which don't necessarily rhyme in American English. Uh, and within that, agency and intricacy. These are all great words that I can't necessarily get into a poem. But here you have them paired up. And, and I was wondering how that works. Maybe another way to put it, this is how I you know, would say it if I was talking to students, is how, how does that work in the poem? Yeah. No, I think, I think it's exactly true that the poem, I certainly wasn't consciously saying I will build this poem with this, you know, A, B, B, A rhyme scheme with these like kind of different length lines. But it showed up just in the musicality, let's mm-hmm. say, of clay, mm-hmm. funnel, rope, and I'm like, oh, that's not even musicality. That's almost, that's a kind of slant rhyme. Mm-hmm. And then I said, oh, I, I like that. And I think that's an important part of this poem. And then as I got to the end, I said, it really needs to, I think the rhyme needs to, especially in the last stanza, be what locks the poem down. Um, so it has definitely moved in its in its last two stanzas towards much something much closer to true rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and it's a truer for you sentiment, as you're saying. You're saying you're building this thing, right? It kind of mirrors the building that you're saying the human heart does. And here, you know, I would just point out something I really love: dust and us. I mean, you know, we, great, amazing. But then there's also this these slant rhymes: dust, heart chest assonance, consonants, I should say, yeah. which is to say the consonants are the same and, and this hard ending that ends with the softer us. Um, really lovely, I think. Yeah. And, and in stanza three, we get world, casino, old Solano. And I remember one point saying like, well, <laughs> let's just call all four of those playing in the same, you know, sandbox. <laughs> right, right, isn't right. It, wait, didn't you kind of switch from ABBA to ABAB? Yeah, Whatever. I think you did. Let's yeah. call them all, they're all talking to each other with an right. O, even if really it, that's actually switches the rhyme sure. scheme. I mean, I find this a lot when you talk to people about poetry is sometimes, you know, I'll ask people what a sonnet is and they'll say letters, <laughs> you know, like this is the rhyme scheme and they'll describe it and I'll say, well, actually, I mean, what's the inner workings of a sonnet? You know, what does a sonnet do? You know, because it almost doesn't help you either as a reader or as a writer to sit down and say, I need to, you know, have this pattern. Instead, you have to say, oh, I'm writing love poems and they're they're kind of short. They're kind of to the same right. beloved, you know, who, yeah. who may be abstract or, or, or there. And I need to find that form that does that. And there's the sonnet for you. Right. No, I agree. The sonnet is an incredibly brilliant form because of its structure, not because of its rhyme scheme. In fact, unrhymed sonnets are just fine with me. It's that it's that eight and six or else the four, 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 two, which is, you know, you know, however, both the versions turns. and the turns and the notion of its, is it a call and response? Is it an answer and an amplification? You know, what any of those versions and yet with the stricture of you can't. I mean, I am a maximalist, so then I, you know, if at line 13 I have more to say, I'll just blow it up and write 29 lines. But no, 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 no. Yeah, you got to get it in. You got to fit the painting within the frame, and that's that's a that's the lovely thing about sonnets. And this is not a sonnet, but it has essentially, you know, not it's not too much bigger than a sonnet. Right. And it's basically the loveliness of forcing yourself to live within the limits of the canvas mm-hmm, is, you mm-hmm. know, because we don't have to, of course. We don't have to rhyme. We don't have to stop at 14 or 20 or 40 lines. Right. But to find your way to that restraint and understand how it it helps enhancing by shaping and limiting the poem is great when it happens. Yeah. So I want to talk about maximalism, which has come <laughs> up for me a lot and thinking about it, but also thinking about, you know, your broader project, your selected poems that you recently had. And you've written a lot of books that think like books. You know, they're book-length yeah. uh, poems or they're poems that uh, add up to a book. Even your first book, Capitalism, has that great 
I mean, first of all, you know, realism, the <laughs> <laughs> capitalism, uh, you know, one would accuse you of having some isms in your work. But well, also there's, a, there's this way in which you're trying to think about these big systems in these little ways. I really believe in the book. I mean, most poets and I th- or, or, or a certain many poets have a the poem is the and mm. of course it has to be. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, the line has to be the sure. line. Each line has to be a thing. And then each poem has to be a thing. But then not all poets. The book is a thing. And it doesn't have to be. There are just collections. Hey, oh, that's that's 42 really nice poems. Right. I don't necessarily make the collective entity particularly sure. important to me. The poem is the unit that matters. And without letting the poem somehow not matter, I, I still focus on the book. The book to me is really important. I just, I mean, I think because I love books. And, yeah. You know, that's where, that's before where I, I love poems, I love books. Yeah. You know, that's way. a good way to put it. So, I mean, even when I feel like I have a lot of good poems here in my hands, I don't necessarily feel like it's a book. Yeah. Until something happens that makes it be a book. And you did know, that happen with the selected? The new one selected was, was really fun. Uh, to do. Good. I know I'd been suspicious about it for yes, a long yes, time. Yeah. I mean, I remember discussing with you how did you survive your <laughs> new and selected, Kevin? And you did. Mine was selected and uncollected. So I, I decided I'll, I'll put the new part off for a while. That's, you're absolutely right. But but that made it new, by the way. And yeah, sure. also, that's what I think a new and selected needs to be. It can't really just be the greatest hits album because we have all those songs. So we don't need to have them in a new configuration. Something has to make it a book. I thought it was a very brilliant turn to turn on its head the notion of having outtakes and saying, no, actually, by putting them in, it becomes new. You know, we've actually remixed it and it's become something different. That was very interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. My version was to put the new, which is, you know. Of course. So that, yeah, okay, we, you know, four-fifths of that book have come out of previous books. But then with the new, it's still, you know, you can still apprehend the whole body of work and see something different. But and then I repackaged it too. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. Just so you put like prose poems together. I mean, tell us what you did. Yeah, I mean, for those who haven't don't have it yet, because I know they'll run out and oh, yes. grab it. Absolutely, uh, for sure they will. Because especially the audiobook, because you know you can be working out, listening to me read the poems. Oh, well, you can did you read every poem? Fall asleep. Yeah, That's the whole amazing. thing. It was really fun too. It was fun. It was. I found it really, really fun. <laughs> oh, interesting. I mean, it was a couple. Of days I read in Brown, the and I, I was, I, I was, you know, you're ready, like, you're <laughs> ready to get out of there. <laughs> well, it just was. It was exhausting, you know. Like, but I think you point to something else too that the poems live orally, hourly. Uh, they live aloud. I, I think that they should. All writing partakes of the sentence, which is a great thing. But, only, you know, and, and even a great, what we all understand to be a great novel, you don't necessarily need to hear aloud. I mean, it, it isn't enhancing the experience. It might be it, nothing wrong with it. The poem needs to kind of move from two-dimensional to three-dimensional when you hear it aloud. I mean, a good poem has that built into it, right? It's not, it's the text, it's the meaning, it's all the stuff we could talk about. And yet when you hear the language read, you're like, oh, there's this other thing. It takes on another shape or kind of reality in the world. That's great. So that was fun part of it too. And they were, you know, they were older poems for me too. So I was actually oh, yeah. reliving the message. I'm like, oh, I haven't read this poem aloud <laughs> right, in right. a lot of years. It's like, I mean, it's going back th- 35 years, I think I said. Wow. There are a couple poems that I wrote, you know, in college. Yeah. Um, so, when I, in fact, I saw, because uh, I did my research on you, <laughs> that, that your first poem in The New Yorker was 1989. Is that right? Yeah. I was just out of graduate school. Um, and on a whim, I sent a couple of poems to The New Yorker, and Alice Quinn was the poetry editor then, and 
I had just thought these were historical poems. It was two little poems she took. And she published them in the Thanksgiving issue because they're kind of – it's called What They Ate and What They Drank. And they're about pilgrims, early Americans in, in the American landscape and, and food Early usages. settlers at least. Settlers. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. I don't – you know, it, it was based on some of those early colonial history books. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they were a little rhymed – yeah. Sonnet-esque poems, in fact. And I love those poems. And she took them and, made, and put them. I was like, wow, that was very exciting. So that, that was 30 years ago. That was 30 years ago. So you have a long relationship <laughs> with the New Yorker. And I, uh, that's, I, I, I'm, I'm you could go excited. for Merwin. Merwin had a seven decades <laughs> long uh, you know, relationship with the New Yorker. <laughs> that blew me away when I realized that. And I started thinking about, like, you know, is that possible now? That you can have this relationship across time with your work with one publication? Well, I mean, you know, the New Yorker is is it. I mean, there's no. I mean, you know, there's no other at least uh, highly visible publication. And but, but I mean, even when the New Yorker changes poetry editors, as it has with your arrival, you know, a year or two ago, um, and you know, Paul Muldoon, and it it it's a more of an evolution, right? Whereas Poetry Magazine has been basically recreated really dramatically several times with its change in in because it's a real change in the philosophy, not just the editor choosing different poems. Whereas the New Yorker has a vision of poetry that has carried on for all the very real differences. Right. Well and that's what I think is interesting about Merwin specifically. Is yeah. he went through many changes and yet there was this place where he could uh, enact those changes. And obviously, those changes are happening in real time, which is to say he's we're publishing the poems, he's writing for the lice as that's happening, or right. Carrier of Ladders, or, or yeah. the poems that are changing for him. Yeah. Uh, there's a stable place that can, and I can think, render them uh, public. And I think Bishop did that, too. You know, in you know, a couple of generations, shifted a little bit earlier. You know, through the, through the mid-century, 20th century, like... What percentage of her poems in the New Yorker? Maybe fifty percent. Sometimes, you know. I mean, well, and, and she was... had one of those uh, exclusive contracts first oh, yeah. read, which you know one wishes still existed, um, both as a poet and as an editor, to, to be able to first see uh, poems. And Plath, I think, had one of those. It made uh, sense, like with Bishop, though. Yeah. You know, because she, you know, it was only going to be twenty finished poems over a ten-year. Thing. Well, and we read you know. her correspondence with the New Yorkers, which I read long before I was, you know, here. Right. I right. was like, what a great correspondence. And what a – it's sort of the dream of a literary connection because I yeah. remember, and I'm sure you do too, when you would send poems out and there was no body, <laughs> you know, like you didn't know who that person was. They were just a masthead person. Right. And you would end up striking up these somewhat long, you know, uh, soon it switched to email, but not very, you know, kind of recently. Yeah. And so you, I had a good, I don't know, 10 years or more where I was writing with people back and forth. And even the early days of email, you might not even meet them right. for a time. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, have we lost that a little? Well, I mean, it changes. Like, I mean, you and I, Kevin, we couldn't have a first read contract with anybody because they'd have to read dozens and dozens of poems that we're writing. <laughs> I mean, you know, which I'm, uh, you know, maybe don't is, that, envy, yeah. is that self-criticism? I don't know. I mean, you know, what can you say? We're producing poems. I think they're all good poems, by the way. But, you know, sure, I, sure. I don't think anyone at The New Yorker Elsewhere needs to read every single one of them and labor over making some decisions, not in the least. Sure. So, uh, but, you, know, you know, the things change or, or yeah, whatever. Sure, but sure. You know what? I have that relationship with my editor, Dan Halpern. I mean, I have it not at the level of a magazine, but at the level of the book, which, as I've already said, is a thing I really value. I mean, I've had a 25-year relationship with my editor, Dan Halpern. And before that, it was my teacher, 
so, you know, I have that relationship with him in terms of the books, thinking about the books, where the mm-hmm. new books, talking right. about it. And in fact, the human heart, I mean, Dan doesn't, you know, read my work line by line and edit it very often anymore because, you know, it would yeah. be, makes little sense to you. But I remember distinctly when I submitted the book that the human heart was in, which is Pax Atomica, it was somewhere, it was somewhere kind of in the middle of the manuscript. And Dan said, to me, that's the central poem. You know, that needs to go right. And I moved it right to the very front of the book. I said, if Dan says anything, I'm like, quite sure it's true and immediately implement it. Isn't that funny? Uh, um, when you read like manuscripts by up-and-coming writers or people who are, are trying to find their first book, you really f- realize how often people don't realize what their best poem is. And, you know, this can last to <laughs> your 10th book, of course. But it's fascinating how we have that blind spot sometimes. Like we don't even know what we're doing or why. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, Maybe I'm, this is all of human existence, but yeah, no, le- no. especially with a poem, you strike gold and then you're you're looking around in the river still and, and you're like, you know what? Actually, this is the poem. You I you have missed completely it. Agree. My my most recent poem, The New Yorker, a few months ago, which you, Kevin, uh, you know, selected, is a poem that I had, I wrote a few years ago and I the first time I read it, People were just like, that poem is amazing. I'm like, is it? I, I thought it was just one My of the music. five poems I was reading. I, I didn't give it any special attention. <laughs> right, right. But people loved it, you know, yeah. in, and I guess it's a poem really built to be heard aloud. In a yeah, there's that, but that it, part too. But It elevated it in my own. So I was like, oh, that's, that's a good poem. I need to, like, attend to that. And I yeah. haven't been. Yeah. Well, and I think attending to one's music is, is, <laughs> is the larger point here. Yeah, it, it's quite true. It's great to Camel, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, it has been a great pleasure. The Human Heart by Campbell McGrath, as well as Cheslaw Miloš's Realism, can be found on NewYorker.com. Cheslaw Miloš's new and collected poems, 1931-2001, was republished in 2017. Campbell McGrath's latest book is Nouns and Verbs. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice Podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to news stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.